0: Happy first week of fall, everybody. Senior Editor Mackenzie Taylor here on this week's edition of the Texans Weekly Roundup Podcast. Our team details the start of the third special session of the 87th legislature, newly proposed redistricting maps, four lawmaker retirements, a familiar name jumping back into contention for a Texas Senate seat, an upcoming special election, a doctor being sued under the newly implemented heartbeat bill, an update on the border crisis in Del Rio, developments in the Paxton whistleblower lawsuit. The federal government investigating Texas over mask prohibitions in public schools, a high profile Democrat preparing for a run for governor, and a Texas senator showing interest in replacing Mitch McConnell as majority leader in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful weekend. Howdy, folks. Mackenzie Taylor here with Daniel Friend, Hayden Sparks, Isaiah Mitchell, and Brad Johnson. Daniel, Hello. what? You know what I forgot? Would you forget?
1: To sit somewhere else.
0: That's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Well, it's nice because I could do this blind at this point. You all sit in your regular Mm -hmm. spots, makes it easy for me. Also, I'm very glad that it's fall now. It's like 20 degrees cooler than usual today, Mm -hmm. and I, you know, I can have my hot coffee that I haven't even in the summer. Is it officially
2: fall yet? Yeah, as yes,
0: as of Wednesday. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So we're officially into fall, which makes my hot coffee drinking life much easier. Mm -hmm. Although y'all keep it freezing in this office, so I can drink it regardless.
2: I didn't realize
1: 75 degrees was freezing, but whatever.
0: <laughs> no. In the office, it feels so cold. I know. Yeah. It's
1: set at 75. That's, that's below freezing, according to the metric system,
3: I think.
0: I don't know. Hayden can back me up. We talk about this far too often on this podcast, but and happy for the fall. record,
3: I have never touched the thermostat on this office. Yeah,
0: me either. Unless I'm told to by our CEO <laughs> or one of y'all. That's the I frequently
3: I touch the thermostat to turn it
1: up.
0: Interesting. Mm-hmm i don't believe that
1: you don't have to believe it it's true
0: well i don't but that's okay but all that to say happy fall folks we have a lot of news to get into today it felt like this week we were in a groove and all of a sudden more news was just happening lots of things going on particularly in the legislature let's talk about the start of the third special session bradley let's get to that as it ramps up give us a reminder of what is on the agenda
2: (laughs) So we already had five items. They were redistricting. That's obviously the biggest one. Uh, disbursement of the $16 billion in federal coronavirus aid, requirements that youth athletes compete within their biological sex, curtailment of vaccine mandates by state and local government entities, and the establishment of a criminal penalty for the unlawful restraint of a dog.
0: And at this point, we haven't seen any movement on bills through the process. The Senate has moved on some things. The Senate has
1: pushed through some, But But yeah.
0: uh, primarily, we have, no bills have passed yet. We're still in the first week not much has happened yep. right i mean how long has the house even spent on the floor this week it's been you know a few minutes here a few minutes yeah. there
2: thursday was the first day that they convened since monday when they opened the lynch the special session
0: yeah and we've had some committee hearings
2: yep but and there will be more uh, uh apparently speaker Phelan said um as speaker Phelan said on the floor thursday that next week there will be a lot a lot more committee hearings so
0: and in typical senate fashion Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, or rather in typical Dan Patrick fashion, the Senate is moving quickly through some of their priority items. So,
2: yeah, we already saw like the um, the property tax compression bill get passed yesterday, um, and so uh, yesterday being Wednesday, and so that's already through and on its way to the House, and uh, you can bet your bottom dollar that. The Senate will do that with multiple other bills.
0: Now, yeah. Now talk to us about there were the two additional items that were added to the agenda this week.
2: Yeah. So one of those is property tax relief. Um, Now, the way one of the proposals was structured, it could have been taken up under the coronavirus aid uh, line item. But now um, any property tax bill can be considered by the legislature. And the other one is. Um, a bail reform constitutional amendment. This bill was passed uh, during the second special session, but the, the paired constitutional amendment did not pass. Uh, it had to get a hundred votes in the house and it did not. And so for that to be put up for a vote by, uh, or for the state voters, uh, it has to pass the legislature first. And so um, the governor Abbott wants to put this in code and, um, in uh, in the Constitution. Uh, just to Basically make it just more a
0: solidification. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A solidification of what the legislature's so already done.
2: Those are the only two additions that brings us up to seven. Uh, pr- rather light docket compared to what we've seen in the last two special sessions.
0: Any surprises or was it pretty much expected?
2: Um, I'd say it's pretty much expected. We talked a little bit about what this means politically and why certain things were placed on there. I'd say the, the unlawful restraint of a dog is kind of a, a question mark, <laughs> although it did pass in the regular session uh, governor Abbott veto vetoed it um it, he's hoping that it's slightly pared down a little bit um we'll see what you know form it takes but that's kind of to me the odd man out uh, of this and um especially given the Uh, primary coming up next year
0: certainly well thank you bradley let's stay on the special session agenda daniel we're coming to you let's talk about redistricting Um, we specifically have proposed senate districts that were released this week or over the weekend talk to us about the big picture with the proposed senate map
1: so i think the big picture with the senate map is that at least the proposed map of course this is going to go through the whole process there are bound to be amendments in the senate usually what happens is when a redistricting bill goes through the senate the senate passes it however they want and then it just kind of flies through the house and the house does their thing and the senate doesn't really touch that <clears throat> now they could possibly do that but that's traditionally what's been done uh, so expect to see some amendments through the senate process that being said, uh, just the the proposed map that did come out, and it's probably going to be generally what the, the final map looks like, uh, at least somewhat, uh, really shores up support for most incumbent incumbents, especially uh, three Republicans and one or two uh, Democrats. So the Republican who helps the most really is who authored the bill and who, who proposed this map is Senator Joan Huffman, who had one of the most competitive districts in the state. Uh, And so it's definitely going to make her district a lot more Republican. It's also going to shore up Republican support uh, for two other Republicans in the Senate, Angela Paxton and Kelly Hancock in the uh, kind of the the DFW area. Um, Hancock is in Fort Worth, Tarrant County, and Paxton is up in Collin County. And so uh, those two districts will become more Republican as well as Huffman's over in the Houston area. Then... um, For Democrats, it'll really shore up support for uh, Senator Nathan Johnson in Dallas County, uh, who had flipped uh, one of those purple seats back in 2018. Uh, And lastly, to a little bit of a lesser degree, uh, SD19, which is down more of a border district that reaches into San Antonio, uh, is also going to become a little bit more Democratic uh, for Roland Gutierrez. Now, yeah. And I will note... Uh, It does show up support for most incumbents, but there is one exception, and that would be a a Democrat-held seat that is probably going to go back to Republican control if this map goes through.
0: Okay, well, talk to us about that district.
1: So that district is Senate District 10, which is represented by Senator Beverly Powell in Tarrant County. Uh, This district has been uh, the center of controversy uh, for the past decade. Uh, Back in 2011, um, that was currently held by a a Democrat then, Wendy Davis— And the Republicans in the Senate then tried turning that into more of a Republican seat. And uh, that was met with uh, objections in the court because it was turning a a district that had become a minority-majority district into a district where Anglos would be in the majority. And so uh, that was actually blocked in the courts, and it was kept intact uh, more what it had been. Um, I imagine that there are going to be similar challenges brought to the court uh, in, in the, in case that this map passes. Uh, but Republicans have been trying to be a little bit more careful in, uh, how they change the demographics there. So, um, if you look at the, the demographics in the proposed district, there are, um, it goes from being a, a very strongly minority-majority district to just a slightly minority-majority district. So Anglos are still in the minority with about 49% instead of, um, I think it was 40% before. So um, still keeping uh, minorities population-wise in the majority. Now, the, the small little catch there, which is probably going to be coming up in, in the courts, is that the, the voter age, po- voting age population is where Anglos are now going to be in the majority. Uh, so there's a little bit of difference there between just the, the population straight up and the voting age population. Those who
0: are actually casting ballots.
1: So um, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out, but something to keep an eye on.
0: Okay, talk to us about other, you know, 30,000 view takeaways from, from these maps.
1: Yeah, so there's uh, there's lots of different changes that have happened, uh, lots of different uh, geographical shifts. Uh, one of the big ones has been uh, the expanding geography of rural districts uh, because rural population is, is kind of not declining or it's not increasing the pace as the rest of the state for certain. And in many parts, it's still declining. Uh, so districts like, uh, SD 31, which is up in the panhandle now reaches from the panhandle down to hill country. So huge, huge district becoming bigger. Um, another interesting thing is that there wasn't really any big attempt to shift the border districts toward the favor of Republicans. Uh, Especially in light of the trend that we've seen along the border in the past few elections, uh, where Republicans have really been gaining control or or gaining support among Hispanics down in that area, especially in the rural areas of the border. And so I think the Senate could have possibly uh, flipped a seat there even, uh, but there hasn't really been any touching, messing with that. Uh, It's really just kept it for the incumbents, uh, the Democrats in those more urban areas down along the border. And so that was something that was interesting, notable takeaway. And then the other last big thing, which we'll talk about a little bit later in this podcast, is that there was a shift in Senate District 14, which doesn't actually help – Senate District 24, sorry. Yeah. um, Doesn't actually help the incumbent because she's actually leaving the Senate to run for a different position. Uh, But it does help another former state senator. And so we'll talk about that a little bit later.
0: I like it. Well, let's stay on how redistricting is affecting lawmakers and talk about retirements. Brad and Hayden, we have some. We have four retirements this week so far of lawmakers saying, particularly state house members saying, "Okay, I'm opting out. I'm not running for re-election." Brad, let's start with uh, Scott Sanford.
2: Yeah. So the McKinney Republican announced this week that he would forego re-election in 22. Um, by the end of this term, he will have been in the house for a decade. So. Um, His reasoning was that he's now, uh, he has a second grandchild on the way and he wants to spend more time uh, with his family. He said, in the midst of changing life seasons and a personal evaluation of priorities, I have made the prayerful decision not to file for re-election. A couple things to note, his district is solidly red according to uh, our Texas Partisan Index rankings or ratings uh, done by Daniel. It's an R66 district. Um, he was rated the 26th most conservative member during this most recent session in 21. And, uh, you know, another side note of it was uh, we don't know how much this played into it, but he was facing a primary challenge uh, by Jim Herblin. And, um, you know, generally to his right, I, I think um, we don't know how much backing Herblin would have gotten whenever we would have gotten to the the primaries. But um, you know that's something that probably played at least a little bit of uh, factor into this. Um, uh, but you know, mainly just this—the re- whole redistricting—is uh, throwing things for a loop and uh, that's why one big massive reason why we're seeing so many retirements
0: and to be fair a winning incumbent and we've talked about this previously ops to retire it provides more flexibility for those drawing the maps because they don't yep. have to predict that sitting incumbent or work with them on their district right they don't have somebody who's already in office they can draw a district and say okay whoever wants to run for it run for it yep. it's a little bit different yep, so but we're going to really see that come
2: into play with Uh, Chris Patty, who Hayden's going to talk about in a minute uh, because East Texas is slated to lose one state house seat.
0: So So talk to us about um, an Austin area state rep opting also not to run.
2: Uh, Celia Israel representative from Austin. um, She has decided not to run for a different reason than most of these other uh, people uh, that we're talking about today. Uh, She is considering a run, mulling a run for Austin mayor which uh, current mayor Steve Adler is term limited in 22. And so there's going to be a vacancy there. And I can imagine that some pretty um, high profile candidates jumping into the race here, considering, you know, it is Austin. It's the state capital, one of the biggest cities in Texas. And certainly one of the most influential. So um, she said the heartbeat of of a city is people from all walks of life working together and learning from each other. That's why I'm proud that the founding core of my exploratory committee is diverse with a broad array of lived experiences. Um, She's a very, very progressive member. Um, You know, you have to be to win in Austin. And uh, she hasn't jumped into the mayor's race yet. She's uh, launching an exploratory committee, but um you know it's pretty it's pretty safe bet that she's going to jump in the race at some point and awesome. yeah. yeah and um like i said it's solid blue district and she could be joining uh candidates like uh kirk watson former state senator uh, that's another big name that's been floating around as well as multiple people that are currently on city council
0: yeah could be a crowded field we'll see how that turns out hayden let's talk about uh chris Patty's retirement out in east texas
3: well, Chris Patty is the chairman of the House State Affairs Committee, and I hesitate to call this a catch all committee because it's not a junk drawer. It handles <laughs> some pretty serious issues. I know border security was one of the things that state affairs handled and considered, but Patty has been in the State House since 2013. And what makes this announcement particularly interesting is it is a reversal. He announced in late August that the 87th legislature's regular session was the most conservative ever. It was a banner year for conservatives, was how he put it, and that he intended to run for his seat again in 2022. But as Brad alluded to moments ago, because of the redistricting process, he said out loud that he did not want to force his colleagues to make some of the difficult decisions that go along with redistricting. And if East Texas is losing a seat, then that means that someone would have to go. Um, and it, it might have become—it's it, awkward, I, I would imagine, for people in the legislature to look at one another and, and try to make those tough decisions. But uh, Patty is stepping aside for that reason, um, in part. But also, since he announced his reelection, the Harrison County uh, Republican Party's Executive Committee— made the decision to censure censure him it was almost a unanimous decision nine to one um, and they listed off 18 different grievances um, ranging from his opposition to a bill that would have prohibited taxpayer funded lobbying as well as his opposition to a requirement that committee chairs in the texas house be republicans which was a hotly contested issue during the rules debate in january so for uh for the, uh, with those circumstances in mind, and with the stated reason of redistricting, um, he will be leaving um, his Texas House district in January of 2023.
0: Very, very good. And there has certainly been controversy in his home area about you know some of the things that he's done in the legislature. So interesting to okay, see that. Just
2: a little bit of uh, addition to this. Um, Patty carried the House's um, electricity reforms. He was the chief. Um, author and uh spokesman for those negotiator uh, in those um hearings and so um, you know he is one of the most powerful members in the com- in the state house and especially with his committee chairmanship and played a big role in this legislative session
3: and it'll be interesting too to see who succeeds him as chair of state affairs i think that'll probably be one of the more um that will probably be a more a high profile discussion as the eighty eighth legislature draws closer.
0: Absolutely, Brian, Let's talk about another high profile Texas GOP House member who opted to retire.
2: Yeah, uh, State Representative Jim Murphy. Um, he is in Harris County in Houston. He uh, serves as the Texas GOP uh, Caucus Chair, House Caucus Chair. He was elected so like in, a
0: majority leader. Is yeah. basically what that's like. He was like. elected
2: in December before. The legislative session began um he again he also has decided to forego re-election um he said uh, it, i'm not going away anytime soon just looking forward to life's next great opportunity uh said so he's going to remain attentive to his duties as chair of the caucus and on the higher education committee uh which he also chairs in the house and so um you know this is one of the biggest movers and shakers in the house Uh, he drives a lot of the policy discussions especially within the gop caucus and so this was somewhat of a shock i would say um but he announced that on thursday morning after the house convened in a meeting with the gop caucus um, and then work got out and then he put out his announcement so
0: There you go. Definitely some big shakeups in the Texas House. Thank you, boys. Daniel, let's talk about the Senate district that you already alluded to. Um, Talk to us about Senate District 24 and who's jumped in the race.
1: So Senate District 24, kind of Central Texas Hill Country area, uh, previously or or currently it is held by Senator Don Buckingham uh, in Travis County. Now, the interesting thing with the proposed Senate map is that uh, it actually cuts out Travis County and uh, in its place, uh, a little bit more population is added from Williamson County, uh, which was not in it previously, uh, but it also dips down uh, south of San Antonio uh, to uh, a small county where actually former state senator Pete Flores, who was previously in Senate District 19, lives. Uh, now, when these redistricting proposal came out, uh, Pete Flores said that he would actually jump into this race uh, and campaign for the Senate seat, which is open because Buckingham is running for land commissioner.
0: Now, Flores has been endorsed already by some pretty high-profile folks in politics. Talk to us about those endorsements.
1: Yes. So uh, one of the notable ones that came out right away was Senator Don Buckingham, the the incumbent for the seat. Uh, So she gives her support to Flores and wants to see him come back to the Senate. Uh, You also have um, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who, of course, would have worked with Pete Flores uh, back in the, the previous session in 2018 or 2019, whatever year that was. Um, And so uh, you've got those two endorsements. And then you also have an endorsement from Senator John Cornyn. Uh, so those are some of the big ones that he's already received and is touting.
0: Now, is Flores the only Republican in this race?
1: Well, we'll actually have to see how the, the maps end up to see who actually stays in the race. Uh, but right now, there is actually still another person campaigning for that. Uh, and that would be former Austin City Council member Ellen Troxclair, uh, who launched his campaign uh, for the seat earlier this year. Uh, you know, when the district was still uh, presumably possibly going to be in Travis County where Don Buckingham lives, uh, as well as Ellen Troxclair. And so uh, now that Travis County has been cut out of the district and is actually going to another cinders district, um, we don't know if Troxclare is still going to be living in the district uh, by the time the map is actually official and the filing window opens for candidates to actually officially file for the ballot. Uh, But that being said, she's still campaigning for the seat and even released an endorsement earlier this week uh, after Flores announced his campaign touting an endorsement from U.S. Representative Roger Williams.
0: Very good stuff. Well, thank you, Daniel, for covering that for us. And we'll definitely be interested to see how the maps actually finalize and where they end up. Isaiah, let's talk about a special election in San Antonio. Who is running and for what seat?
4: I don't think so. (laughs) <laughs> <clears throat> so, there are, are five candidates fine to replace State Rep. Leo Pacheco in the Texas House. Pacheco, a Democrat, is retiring to return to academia and teach at San Antonio College. Uh, one of the candidates is I'm not, this is just the way they're ordered on the Texas State Secretary website. Yeah. Uh, Katie Ferris, a Democrat. Currently, she um, is a Southside Independent School District board member. Uh, John Lujan, a Republican who lost the seat that he formerly held there to Thomas Uresti, a Democrat in 2016, and who also ran against Pacheco in 2018. Uh, And he's
0: been endorsed by Governor Abbott, correct?
4: Yes. Yeah, just recently, yeah. Desi Martinez, a Democrat and a San Antonio trial lawyer. Frank Ramirez, who... Pacheco, whom Pacheco has endorsed. Oh, that was a close one. <laughs>
1: uh,
4: and uh, he's also been endorsed by Jalen Mckee Rodriguez and Adriana Rocha Garcia. Those are two members of the San Antonio City Council. And he's worked with them before on zoning and planning. And another Republican named Adam Sawyer, who unsuccessfully ran for the seat as the GOP nominee in 2020.
0: Now, when is the election?
4: September 28th.
0: There we go. I yeah. like it. Well, thank you, Zay, for that. We're going to stick with you, talk some more about your beats, but the Heartbeat Act has been a big <clears> portion <throat> of what you've been reporting on. Um, it was built to use lawsuits instead of government punishment for enforcement, and we're seeing the first lawsuits being waged here in Texas. Talk to us about where they came from and why.
4: There was a San Antonio abortion physician named Alan Braid. Well, he's still around, actually, but <laughs> <laughs> recently he published an opinion article in the Washington Post, uh, publicly defying or admitting that he defied the Texas Heartbeat Act just days after it took effect. So, in response, there were two lawyers, one from Illinois, one from Arkansas, who filed, I, I think, I'm very sure, the first enforcement suits attempted against a violator of the Heartbeat Act. What's interesting is that both of these attorneys are disbarred, and both of them have said, one of them in the court document itself, that they're filing these suits in an attempt to get the Heartbeat Act overturned.
0: Very interesting. Now, how could this change the landscape of pro-life versus pro-choice battles over this law in court?
4: So everyone's aware that by, by now that the reason why the law is structured this way is because typically in Texas and in other states, uh, in Texas they have a way of making themselves to the Supreme Court. When we pass, when the state passes laws to restrict abortion, big abortion providers will sue on behalf of women seeking abortions under third-party standing, and um, then they'll get an injunction, or the law be overturned, or what have you. Uh, Braid actually participated in one of these attempted suits uh, against Texas's ban on dismemberment abortions that just got ruled constitutional at the Fifth Circuit. So he's got kind of history with this kind of thing. But because of the way the Harvey Act is structured, that tactic hasn't been working. So it's kind of bucking the typical procedure because an injunction against the government when these providers sue the government will not have any effect on the private lawsuits that the law authorizes. That was the Supreme Court's reasoning for not taking up the case was that, you know, halting this law would not resolve even temporarily a controversy between these providers and the state. So, having somebody actually sued under the act that suffers monetary damages could confer standing to challenge its constitutionality. And that's something that the state has actually maintained in some court documents that that is ample avenue enough to challenge the law's constitutionality if you're sued under it so that's what they've argued in suits against for example the whole Woman's health suit that made to the almost made it to the supreme court um that's been the state's argument is that if you know there's totally an avenue to challenge the constitutionality of the law if you're sued under it and now we're seeing this for the first time Um, with that exact purpose in mind from the two attorneys who sued.
0: Yeah, and it's a very interesting angle. And we've talked at length about the unique framing of this law, particularly. So it's interesting to see that um, be brought forward and actually utilized, even if it is, uh, you know, in objection to the law itself so thank you for that hayden let's talk about the border and there has been a lot of hubbub surrounding the del rio area and just what's been going on down there we've talked it you know at at length about this you've reported at length about it but talk to us about what the del rio area has been facing in the last few weeks
3: well hubbub is probably a gentle word (laughs) to describe what has been going on in del rio in recent days, uh, particularly uh, last Friday and Saturday, the Del Rio community was inundated with thousands of individuals, most of whom were from are from Haiti and have reportedly been in Central American countries like Chile and Brazil. And a lot of information has been spread by word of mouth, uh, particularly among Haitian individuals that... The Biden administration had chosen to extend temporary protected status uh, to anyone who was in the country before, I believe, a date in late July. And in addition to that, the Biden administration chose to stop deporting individuals, um, I believe, on September 8th due to an earthquake that hit Haiti recently. And of course, that country has been uh, rocked by other turmoil, such as the assassination of their president, which I think is still being investigated. Uh, But based on that information, um, I've seen varying figures, but uh, as many as 16,000 Haitians uh, went to Del Rio, crossed the Del Rio International Uh, the international border there and camped out near and around and under the Del Rio international bridge. And it it became popular for people to say people were camping under the bridge, but there were people all over the place around this bridge. There were, there's drone footage. There are pictures. Of course, there's plenty of media now of of what's taking place at first. It was a little bit restricted. I'm sure because federal authorities are trying to gauge the situation themselves. Uh, But they're just, Absolutely overwhelmed. Uh, congressman Gonzalez, who represents the largest portion of the southern border than any other congressman, posted pictures of empty grocery store shelves in Del Rio. The mayor of Del Rio, uh, Bruno Lozano, uh, was waving his arms, all, all but uh, yelling at the Biden administration to get their attention. That and and he has been since February that the situation is untenable, and this is just the latest episode in, in what has been going on this year. Uh, of course, in August and July, there were more than two hundred thousand enforcement encounters with illegal aliens. So many of these individuals. Uh, Haitian individuals have been taken into custody. They have some of them been deported to Haiti, deportation, deportation flights, repatriation flights have resumed and uh, many individuals have gone back. Of course, many of them have not been in Haiti um, in many years. And this is part of the feds effort to get this under control. And as a result of that, once again, word of mouth, people began to get the message that deportation flights had, have had resumed. and so then there were reports of people going back over uh, the river at the Rio Grande um, and and that is what uh, spurred some of the, the optics that have uh, people have been preoccupied with uh, many of the optics of this issue. Um, so the uh, border crossings, um, Resulted in uh, a, a shortage of resources in that area, and uh, what what could be lost in and what has happened in Del Rio, and what I was told by a, um, a former Border Patrol chief earlier this week is that um, if these deportations are only applied to Haitians, it it could it won't necessarily deter other groups right uh, from from coming across the border. Um, And so this is part of the broader border crisis and the Texas department of public safety and the Texas national guard have had to step up uh, due to the lack of personnel uh, uh, on the border. And they've of course been distracted by humanitarian issues because they're taking care of women who are giving birth children who have healthcare needs, uh, men and women who have healthcare needs, and they're unable to attend their border patrolling duties and the Texas Department of Public Safety has supplemented that by sending a surge of, of, of officers to the border. Some would say that not enough National Guard troops are being sent there, but they've even gone as far as creating a, a barrier with their DPS vehicles. Um, and so, that those are some of the, the things that the uh, uh, state-level authorities have done to try to get the situation under control.
0: Very good. Well, thank you for covering that for us. Let's stay on that uh, general story. Uh, talk to us about a, an altercation that happened down there during all of this. Again, hubbub being a very generous word, this conflict. Um, but was anybody hurt in an incident that took place in South Texas on Monday? And talk to us about what exactly happened.
3: Uh, well, as I said, the, um, because of the deportations that the feds have commenced, they were transferring individuals in a bus. I believe there were two buses involved in the incident. And uh, I was told by the chief deputy in nearby Kleberg County, Jamie Garza, uh, that there, were, uh, there was a convoy of two buses. And on one of these buses, uh, the border guards transporting these Haitian illegal aliens um, were attacked. And this bus was essentially overrun. And the way Garza put it is when, when an officer could be at risk, it's like awakening a sleeping giant. So Mm -hmm. there was a great uh, law enforcement presence there on U S highway 77 um, as this bus was being uh, transported or transporting these individuals from Del Rio to Brownsville. And some of them were able to escape, but they were ultimately captured and placed on a more secure bus and taken to their final destination, of Brownsville. And he emphasized that uh, there were no injuries in this incident. And um, this foreshadow I won't say it foreshadowed, but it, it um, was similar to another incident that took place. Once the, the planes landed in Haiti, uh, there were some pilots that were assaulted um, by individuals who are being uh, deported to Haiti. So it's a very chaotic situation as, as, some of these individuals are deported, and some of them are being uh, given released into the country and being given notices to appear, uh, rather than facing repatriation, being sent back to their home country. Uh, so, a very chaotic situation on the southern border. Um, but the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, promised uh, at a congressional hearing on Tuesday that we should expect the encampment to dissipate and for the situation to improve rapidly because of the, um, the measures that they put in place. So we'll have to see uh, how that how that plays out in the coming days.
0: Well, Aiden, thanks for straightening out all those facts for us so we can have a better understanding of what exactly is going on down there. Certainly something we'll keep an eye on. And thank you for your reporting on that. Daniel, there was a new hearing in the Ken Paxton whistleblower lawsuit earlier this week. Give us some quick background on that case.
1: So if you don't remember, uh, a year ago, there were former aides who uh, raised some allegations against uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton, in the office of the Attorney General. Uh, you know, these were top attorneys working pretty much directly under Paxton himself, raising some pretty serious allegations of abuse of office and bribery. And uh, shortly thereafter, after they raised those allegations, uh, they were fired or let go from the office, or some of them resigned. <coughs> And uh, ultimately, four of them filed a lawsuit under the Texas Whistleblower Act uh, against the Office of the Attorney General, uh, alleging that they, re- they faced retaliation uh, for their uh, raising their allegations. Um, now, the OAG has attempted to have this lawsuit rejected by the court on the grounds that the plaintiffs don't have standing, but the district court that this lawsuit was brought into actually rejected those arguments Uh, And then the OAG appealed this to the Third Court of Appeals in Travis County. And that's where that is right now.
0: Now, what did the court hearing focus on?
1: So the hearing this week, really, uh, the judges honed in on a single argument that was being made by the Solicitor General, who is arguing on behalf of the OAG. Uh, And that argument is that uh, Paxton is essentially protected from the Whistleblower Act because he's an elected official. Now, the Whistleblower Act uh, in Texas applies to employees, uh, governmental entities, and appointed officials, but doesn't actually specify an elected official. Uh, Now, one of the things that the uh, plaintiffs, the the whistleblowers, argue uh, kind of against this is that even though uh, there's no uh, elected official specified in the um, Whistleblower Act, they're not specifically exempted from it either uh, in code. Now, even though the lawsuit uh, itself is actually against the Office of the Attorney General the and not Paxton, uh, so Paxton is not named as the defendant in the suit, uh, the OAG says that the opponent's arguments all hinge on the actions of Paxton. Uh, now, meanwhile, the, the plaintiffs contend that this uh, kind of defense that OA, that Paxton is exempt because he's, he's an elected official is really a dangerous argument and could set a bad precedent. Uh, because Paxton, in his capacity, was essentially acting as the governmental entity in this case. Uh, that, that's their argument. Now, I, I think it was interesting, the judge's grilling of the Solicitor General, um, after he, he started presenting his arguments, you know, the, he has 20 minutes to argue, and a minute in, they start asking him questions about this. And so they're kind of grilling him on this. It seems to suggest that they don't really buy that argument, but we'll see uh, what they ultimately decide.
0: Now, how long could this case foreseeably go on for? This has been, I mean, an issue for a long time here, and it's not like the attorney general Mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, uh, new to this kind of conflict um, in terms of the legal battles going on in the state. But foreseeably, how long could this specific case go on for?
1: So cases like this, like you pointed out, uh, here's another case that's been going on for years and years. Uh, This case was filed back in November. And so, you know, it's still gotten not gotten to the point where they're really arguing about the, the whistleblower lawsuit itself. They're still arguing about whether or not it has standing. Uh, and this is an appellate court. So um, this will likely continue to go on for a long time. We don't know when the appellate court is going to issue an order. But when they do, I, I really imagine that you know whatever way they rule on it, Uh, this is going to go up to the Supreme court of Texas. Um, this is kind of an issue that, uh, they're, they're going to push hard, both sides are going to push hard on this. And so then it's going to be pending before the Supreme court and, uh, it'll wait there. And then it might go back down to the, um, the district court, depending on how the Supreme court rules. And so it could go on for, for quite some time. Um, and this would go on continue throughout the, the whole midterm election cycle next year. Uh, so we'll definitely hear more about this case going on. Uh, another thing that isn't going to help it be expedited any faster is the big backlog of cases. Uh, this was actually the first in-person hearing that the Third Court of Appeals had since the pandemic began. Um, so there's a huge backlog of cases because of that. So it, it's just going to take a while.
0: Yeah, and we've even heard from you know different different folks and the broader political spectrum that okay, well, this is certainly an issue that one will be a huge talking point of the attorney general primary race, wherein the attorney general is facing three you know pretty prominent opponents, um, on, you know on the Republican side, specifically citing these allegations as the reason for their jumping in the race, mm-hmm. um, or the or the uh, just problem in general with the attorney general's tenure, um. But also during the the general election, even last cycle, before all of this broke, there are other allegations that you know his opponent then used I- mm-hmm. in every in every campaign messaging. So politically, where do you see this going?
1: Uh, politically, it's going to be uh, definitely a, a maybe. This is too strong of a term a bloodbath. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
1: I don't think there's going to be any actual blood spread over this. But um, <clears throat> let's hope not. It is going to be definitely one of the huge controversial items uh, this week. We actually saw a few interviews come out with um, uh, each of the the Republican candidates in this race who are challenging Paxton. And they're all really touching on this. Uh, George P. Bush in particular has gone uh, full steam ahead in pushing this uh, against Paxton and the allegations against him. Um, you have also... Uh, I believe, former Supreme Court Justice Eva Guzman, uh, which it'll be interesting to see if it does go up to the Supreme Court, you know, what the Supreme Court will do, you know, with one of their former colleagues in the race in the against race. him. Yeah. Um, but uh, she even said this week, I believe, that uh, he should resign. And um, you also have uh, State Representative Matt Krause, who just joined the race pretty recently. And uh, I don't think that he's going quite as far as the other two candidates, but he is saying, you know, this is going to be a problem with him getting elected. And so um, it's definitely a controversial item It's going to be continued throughout the next year. And, we'll hear a lot
0: about it. and we've Yeah, exactly. And these candidates aren't necessarily citing political differences with the Attorney General so much as they are citing, you know, these allegations and yep. administrative problems within the office, those kinds of things. So we'll continue to hear this for sure. But thank you for covering that for us. <laughs> Isaiah, let's go to you. Pretty interesting here. We've talked a lot about state and local uh, conflicts in terms of mask mandates for localities. And now the federal government has uh, gotten involved with the state and opened up an investigation into the Texas Education Agency over the state's prohibition on mask mandates talk to us about it and why is this happening
4: yes so the office of civil rights within the u.s department of education has been opening investigations into states around the country that um, to some degree or another have not allowed schools or school districts to implement mask mandates and texas is the latest the argument for texas i, I mean haven't looked at other states i presume it's similar is that um, the department suspects that a prohibition on mask mandates might legally count as discrimination against disabled students, specifically students with disabilities that um, put them at a heightened risk for severe illness from COVID and that would be prevented from safely returning to in-person education if nobody's wearing a mask. That's, that's the general argument. And there's been, it it mirrors the claims of a similar lawsuit. This is an investigation, but it reminds me of a lawsuit that um, is still ongoing there is a disability advocacy group that sued the state on behalf of a number of disabled children um, because of Abbott's prohibition on mask mandates. Because if you all remember, the prohibition comes from an executive order. It wasn't a law that the legislature passed, but um, it's still state policy and the TEA has decided that in the most recent guidance that they're going to treat it as enforceable. So there's this lawsuit going on as well under essentially the same claim and um, the most recent major event, major, major order, was that the judge denied the group's petition for a temporary restraining order to stop the mask part of GA38. So that's a bit of a loss for them. But um, who knows how this new intervention by the feds will, will change that suit. And, how it'll end up.
0: Yeah, and that executive order really has been what all these lawsuits or movements by localities has stemmed from, right? So right. it'll be interesting to see how now the federal government's involvement changes that or, you know, basically it's just conflict and one entity going after another. So thank you for covering that for us. Daniel, let's talk about more proposed maps, um, this time with the proposed map of the State Board of Education Districts. How will that affect the partisan leaning of the board if these districts, if these maps are the ones that are accepted at the end of the day?
1: Yeah, so you know, like the, the Senate map, this is going to have to go through the whole legislative process. There's going, there's bound to be amendments on this legislation uh, as they kind of fine tune where these districts are. Uh, but the proposal that was put forth also by Senator Joan Huffman uh, in the Senate, uh, if this went through, uh, it wouldn't likely change anything quite as drastically as the Senate map. Uh, but it does do the similar thing in shoring up support for incumbents. Um, now, it wouldn't flip any any seats from Republican to Democrats, uh, based on the, the voting patterns. Uh, but it would shore up support for, for a couple of those close state, close races and lean them towards, uh, the incumbents, uh, thing. So that really does help Republicans, uh, where I think there's, there's three Republicans in kind of more purple districts, uh, that shore up a lot more support. And then there's also one, uh, Democrat that is going to become more democratic. Um, now the, the and then there's also, one uh, seat that's down in South Texas, kind of the Rio Grande Valley, and then it curves up along the coast. And that'll end up being, uh, if this map goes through, probably the most competitive uh, seat, close to kind of a 50-50 split. Uh, but it does become a little bit more Democratic. The incumbent is a Democrat, so um, we'll see You know that there might be more political fights there. Um, but that's kind of how the, the map would shape up.
0: And there are 15 state board of education members, right? Okay. So then 15 districts talk to us, um, about, there was some controversy, um, over the pairing of one set of members. So these members got districted into the same district, Mm -hmm. both incumbents. Uh, why was that? Why did that happen? Tell us about the controversy.
1: So this is something that does happen frequently. And when the house maps do come out, this will be something that we'll definitely want to ever be who's nerding out about this will pay attention to <laughs> uh, because the pairing is really uh, in, in Texas law, you have to live in the district uh, that you're running in uh, unless it's a congressional seat, which the is state a state legislature. Federal. Yeah. for the state, you have to be in the district. Um, and so if you get paired with another member, well, your, your choices are either you can't run again. Um, I mean, or you, or you run against the incumbent, you can't run for your old seat or uh, you move back to a different seat. So uh, in this case, There were only two members in the State Board of Education who were paired, uh, and that would be uh, Matt Robinson in Friendswood, uh, which is just south of Houston. He was actually retiring, uh, a Republican, uh, was paired into a Houston Democrats district, uh, Lawrence Allen. Uh, Now, even though uh, he's retiring, Robinson claims that the drawing him into the district, into a Democrat district... Uh, was retaliation for his votes against charter schools and that'll end up disenfranchising the mostly Republican voters in Friendswood. Uh, Now, apart from that, uh, Robinson was supportive of the map and said that he did like seeing uh, more support shored up for his Republican colleagues in the SBOE.
0: Yeah. And Robinson certainly has been the uh, center of a lot of this conversation about Republicans and charter schools. And Mm -hmm. I think it was a surprise to some to see his stances more recently. So thank you for that. We appreciate your coverage and we will continue to watch all of that. Um, But, Bradley, we're going to come back to you. It sounds like a a very high profile Democrat is nearing a run for governor. We've heard these rumors before. Unsurprisingly, it's Beto. Talk to us about the news on this front.
2: Shocking, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was basically an open secret at this point that he was at least mulling the run. I mean, he's increased his pull, his public, um, exposure a lot recently, especially during all of the election bill fight, um, and the quorum break and all that stuff. (laughs) Um, so he actually has not confirmed anything yet, but Axios broke a story over the weekend and said that, um, a few, uh, Uh, political uh, consultants had told them that he is close to announcing he will do so later this year when that is no idea but um that is you know likely to come and i think it would be a massive shock if it ends up not happening uh democrats currently don't have any high profile candidates in the race and there's Really, been no talk of any other candidates for the Democrats explicitly jumping in. Now there has been talk about Matthew McConaughey. Would he run as a Democrat? Would he run as independent? No idea. Um, he hasn't even. He's just kind of uh, cold speculation on it too, and he's not had hasn't come out and said one way or the other either. Uh, but it's interesting. We saw some polling come out recently um, in a hypothetical matchup between Abbott and Beto. Uh, Abbott was up forty-two to thirty-seven. Now, obviously, uh, you know that's a five-point lead for Abbott, and uh, but that had the margin had shrunk a significant amount since the last iteration of the poll. Uh, but another odd twist was showed that um, I don't remember the exact percentages, but Matthew McConaughey was up on Abbott in that hypothetical 44-35. To 44-35, by substantial margin, um, and so. Who knows what's going to happen um, other than, you know, I think Beta is going to jump in the race and uh, most people know that. And um, But as far as McConaughey jumping in, how does that affect this race? We don't know. And also, you know, Abbott has to get through his primary. And so um, if Beta were to jump in and should the primary opponents for Abbott make things interesting, um Abbott's, you know, $55 million war chest that is a great advantage to him right now is going to take a hit and he'll have to use it. He'll dip into it quite a bit. Um, Beta would pose a far bigger, far more substantial opposition than uh, Lupe Valdez did in 2018 against Abbott. So um, we'll see. Name
0: ID, fundraising, all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, just a higher profile figure uh, in total.
0: Yeah. And to be fair, Beto running in the presidential in 2020 will affect his ability to run in Absolutely. Texas, right? So the hell yes, I'll take your AR-15s. That's not going to fare well in a lot of the more uh, moderate Democrat districts, the border yeah. area, that it, that won't fare as well as it, it did in not the in same a Beto Democrat that primary. ran against Ted
2: Cruz. Yes. That's for sure. Uh, but I think it's fair to point out that Beto still ran pretty progressively in 2018. Uh, now he didn't go as far as to endorse gun confiscation, which he did during the presidential. Yeah. But you can bet that Abbott's going to use that on every mail piece. Oh yeah. The, Hell yeah. We'll take your AR
1: 15s <laughs> and your AK 47s. So, and the other thing since then, I've also noticed, um, I, I believe it was representative August Pfluger out in West Texas, actually sent out an email, a fundraising email or campaign kind of email saying, you know, beta going to rake in a lot of money. Uh, help me get, donate to me, of course. Uh, but I think that is a good point that, even if with beta running, even if he's running as a really progressive candidate that won't fare well with moderates in Texas, uh, he still has the potential to rake in a lot of money for Democrats in Texas. And just have – take the money out of it. Just ha- draw more
2: Democrats to the polls to drive up the returns mm-hmm. for lower ballot de- Democrats, yeah. which we saw happen in 2018. Obviously, he also had $80 million to work with. Right. So um, will he have that kind of effect again? Um, I think he'll definitely – help more Democrats more than he hurts them, but we don't know if it'll be enough.
0: But Mm -hmm. at the same time in 2018, folks, you know, Republican primary voters, Republican general election voters were very concerned with Beto, but they weren't – I don't think they're as motivated as they they will be now, right? Mm -hmm. You say Beto, and that is the word that strikes fear among Republican voters in Texas, right? 2018 was a stark reminder that there are a lot of Democrats who will come out and vote. There are independents, and they can be swayed to vote for a candidate that has messaging they agree with, regardless Mm -hmm. of what the policies may be. I don't know – who will be more motivated Democrats to come out and vote for Beto or Republicans to try and ensure he does not win. Yeah. So, and
1: of course the other factor to consider is who's in the white house. Uh, we have a, a Democrat now instead of a Republican. Right. When Beto ran.
0: Yeah. And he's coming at this from a second, very high profile loss. It's a different. It's entirely different. So yeah. who knows what this actually will mean? Um, but the polling is very interesting. The forty-two thirty-seven spread, very interesting. We'll see what happens. McConaughey, I think you know, in our in our expert political opinions, I would say running as an independent would be where his bread and butter is, where he can actually get some of that field that. You know, play the Ross
2: Perot, yeah, and Abbott v. Beto matchup.
0: It'd be interesting. Who knows? Well, Bradley, thank you for that. We'll continue to watch, and it's it's just fun to talk about these kind of matchups. It's like a uh, you know big boxing rounds or something. Um, Daniel, let's talk about John Cornyn. Speaking of uh, Senate races. Uh, he was just reelected to the text or to the U.S. Senate, um, and this week made some comments um, about a potential rise to prominence in the uh, you know the federal government. Talk to us about his comments at a uh, festival here in Texas.
1: Yeah, so during a uh, virtual festival, uh, Senator Cornyn responded to some reporters' questions, uh, who asked him in this interview, "Will Texas get another uh, majority leader, minority leader uh, in the U.S. Senate?" And Cornyn said that if the opportunity arises, he'd like to do that. Now, there is one huge caveat, and that is uh, that he does support uh, the current Republican leader, Mitch McConnell. uh, And McConnell has given no indication that he's going to leave that role anytime soon. Uh, And, you know, Cornyn is one of his lieutenants. He's up there in leadership. So very loyal to him. You're not going to see some kind of rebellion. Uh, I don't expect (laughs) to see that. Then again, you know, 2020 was breaking all expectations so (laughs) curveball could happen but um you know this is only if McConnell decides that he doesn't want to be the leader for some reason uh we could see Cornyn try to go for that position
0: now how old are these two I thought that was interesting you noted this in your article yeah
1: so I I didn't include this fun factoid in the article (laughs) maybe I should have you probably would have cut it
0: that's correct, but yeah. you can say on the pod. <laughs> that that <is> okay. <laughs> well,
1: <clears throat> <clears throat> Senator John Cornyn is 69 years old and he is about 314 million seconds younger than Mitch McConnell. Wow. Which is about 10 years exactly. Got uh, it. They're both born in February, so McConnell is 79. Now even in the Senate that that's not too old. I mean, we look at that number and we're like I hear many people complain, you know, senators shouldn't be that old. They should retire and, and let somebody new go in. Um, but even at 79 years old, that's not terrible. That is one on the older end of the Senate. Uh, but there are senators who are 88 years old, uh, Chuck Grassley. Um, so, you know, they could be in there for another 10, 20 years uh, down the road if they continue to be reelected like they have been. Um, so it's, it's definitely possible that uh, Corning could be a future leader, maybe not soon but after his next re-election if he if he chooses to do that
0: now has the great state of texas previously had a senate majority leader
1: uh yes it has uh and also he happened to be a former uh president from texas as well Ooh. uh Washington Washington johnson <laughs> george washington no i well maybe <laughs> like maybe he was born in texas and the history books have it wrong
0: wow conspiracies yeah wow well daniel thank you for that gentlemen as y'all know or as brad did not know the rest of y'all i should assume were fully aware fall started this week let's talk about the best parts of fall let's have this be our fun topic i am as a white girl as it gets and ready to you know devour all things pumpkin so i'm really excited we could have
4: discussed our favorite (laughs) mates
0: which we still can do um the boys uh propose different fun topics for me in our in our document here and it's always interesting to see what is put down. But fall. Best parts about fall. Daniel start us off.
1: So I went to a donut shop. I won't name which one uh yesterday morning. I was gonna pick up some Is this a negative review? Fall.
0: Is that why you is that why you won't mention it?
1: I plead the fifth. <laughs> um I was, I was gonna pick up like some fall donuts. They didn't have. I, I thought they had like some kind of a, a pumpkin flavored one. They didn't have it. I was in a bit of a rush too, so I I ended up backing out of the driveway. Uh, but I do like the the fall flavored food. Mm. Um, you know, having some apple cider, having some some mm-hmm. pumpkin bread. Like you so generously stopped. So that's why I asked you to to stop at Starbucks yesterday and, and get some pumpkin bread because. <laughs> i didn't have the pumpkin flavored donut
0: that you so desired mm-hmm. you You were and the
1: bread was fantastic
0: it's always the worst when you have an expectation for food and you mm-hmm. go to get it and then you are unable to retrieve yeah. it it's just a big disappointment
1: it was it was a disappointment but i was also like i don't need the sugar so mm-hmm. it's probably better
0: but then you ended up getting pumpkin bread so yeah uh, it's a little less sugar probably probably a little bit probably a little bit isaiah fall
4: um it's a good thing I'm going before Brad because my answer is Thanksgiving. I know that's <laughs> Brad's favorite holiday, I think. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've got to say Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm a big fan of the food. I really like the way my family does Thanksgiving. Um, there's always we, – we have turkeys every year. Uh, my dad would make one. My Uncle Brad's going to bring one. And uh, But there's also always these other meats that they'll bring, too, like ribs is mm-hmm. one year or something like that. you know. And we have a football game. Uh, my aunt misty will plead with me to not injure any more of her children (laughs) and um, somebody will get injured and it's just fun so we have a football game we eat a lot of food and um uncle brad falls asleep at the cowboys game oh Mm -hmm. it's just thanksgiving uncle brad you gotta stop falling asleep yeah
0: yeah seriously i'm looking over at our brad pretending that he is the one at fault here that sounds like an all i wish i was
2: taking a nap right now
0: (laughs) excuse our podcast um we'll it sounds like an all-american thanksgiving that's amazing brad favorite part about fall the fall
2: um i will obviously second isaiah's love for thanksgiving uh college football is a big one although it's been a constant disappointment the last <laughs> 21 years of my life so we'll see if that continues
0: the drama wait why only 21 years
2: um because michigan has beaten ohio state before then oh got it okay (laughs) we've done it twice in 20 years um let's see i love hating pumpkin in all of its variations Mm. that is one of
1: my passions Mm -hmm. um we should get some like some more pumpkin bread maybe i'll bake some
0: hey that's a great i'll bake i'll make some muffins you make some bread we'll bring it in we'll put it directly in front of bread Mm -hmm. great Cool. Good plan, team.
3: <laughs> I will also be um, decorating my desk with all things pumpkin. And it should be noted that my desk is the one right next to Brad's. Mm. So delightful. making okay, that wonderful. announcement now. Okay. Good.
2: Cool. Well, uh, also, as a dang northerner, I enjoy the cooler weather. Mm. Uh, you know, the umpteenth day of 100-degree weather is uh, not something I very much enjoy here in Texas um it's one of the few things i don't enjoy in Texas and so i welcome any break in in the heat that we get uh, which we had the other day it was beautiful at 75 degrees
1: yeah and um, today too on thursday what woke up on thursday and it's 55 degrees outside Oof. okay okay but i think my favorite part of fall would
2: have to be uh the october classic uh, the MLB playoffs even though my team will not be in it and uh, will and hasn't been in it for a while but uh, that's always fun and so I'll probably stick with that
0: I like it Hayden
3: well <laughs> I guess Thanksgiving's already taken and Pumpkin's are already taken y'all are taking up you all can, the good ideas you can e- just
0: tell us your favorites
3: um, there's room for more people I like the fall because I like New Year's and Fall is like the Friday of the year. Interesting. Hmm. I love really the perplexed to look that Mackenzie just gave me.
0: <laughs> well, I loved it, and I was processing it, and I look over and Isaiah is just really cracking up at that.
3: I'm, okay, well, uh, that is my official statement.
0: It's like it's like the Christmas Eve of the year.
3: No, that I, I wasn't quite where I was going with that. But he said Friday. It's it's like the Friday of the year, yeah. like November. I, you're just kind of you know and then the last two weeks you're just kind of mentally you know ready to start a new year mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i feel like no one's quite tracking with um what i'm saying so
0: yeah,
3: well
0: i i like it if it does feel like i don't know going into the holidays there's a lot to be excited yeah. about so it kind of feels like um there's anticipation associated with it I understand. Um, I just love fall period. Basically everything about it again as a northerner, uh, former northerner. The cool weather is fantastic. It's 85 degrees today and we're all saying, man, it feels so good. Again, I mentioned the cool weather earlier, but it feels like I'm justified in drinking my hot coffees. Um, I just love the holidays. I love Christmas, and so this really does feel like the Christmas Eve of you the holidays. You love Christmas? <laughs> really? A, mm.
3: I've never heard this before.
0: Oh my gosh, shocking. How many days? I'm being facetious. Actually, I don't know how many days. Wow, she I doesn't know how many days. We're
1: less than 100, and she doesn't how
0: know. How many days until Christmas? She is, is probably oh wait, 93. There you go. I was going to guess 92, so yeah. I was one off.
1: She I'm, used pretty to sure, have
3: his, I'm pretty sure on December 26th last year, you posted 364 days till Christmas. I think yeah. you're right.
1: I'm pretty sure she had... You know, on her whiteboard at that time, yes. and just like this counter that she would do every day.
0: Yeah, I haven't had it this year for most of the year. For some of it, yeah, I did,
1: which is really shocking.
0: Yeah,
1: I've I've been concerned about you.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I used to use my whiteboard to track all my tasks, and now I use my planner. So then it just feels like I forget to change it, and that uh-huh. was discouraging to me. The it was discouraging that I was not changing. Hayden is laughing really under his breath. But no, I love fall. my dad sent me a picture the other day of these four white girls sitting on the stoop of a house sitting by pumpkins. And he says, since when is Mackenzie part of stock photos uh, that you can purchase online? And I thought that was very funny.
2: <laughs> You're calling yourself basic.
0: Yes, I am. Well, I, I don't think I'm that basic, but other people seem to. So I'll, I'll, I'll concede, but. There was one that actually did look a lot like me. So there's only so much you can, only so much uh, resistance you can have to that kind of argument. Anyway, I'm excited. Pumpkin everything. Congratulations. Bring it on. on I want to bake. I want to bake so bad.
3: Congratulations,
0: Congratulations on, on you. fall.
3: Thank you. Yeah. I'm really excited. Veterans Day is also in November, and I love patriotic holidays. So. I'm all about that.
0: Do we have, okay, so let's talk about. This real fast Halloween versus Thanksgiving. I'm gonna have you guys raise your hands. I know our podcast listeners won't be able to see. I will. I will report. If you prefer Halloween to Thanksgiving, raise your hand. Nobody raise their hands. That is a very good answer. Halloween pass, is kind of gross. You can continue to lit work at the Texan. Yes, people I put totally gross agree. stuff
3: in their in their yard and yeah. all kinds of nastiness on Halloween. Like it'd be fun if if kids just dressed up as characters or something. <clears> but little Batman. People make it gross. Yeah.
2: Uh, I definitely prefer Thanksgiving, obviously, but I will say I just moved into a house and I am very excited to hand out candy.
0: Oh, that's so fun. Halloween. I love handing out candy. Especially because
1: it's in a neighborhood and there will actually be kids.
0: Yeah, 100%. I lived in
1: a small town, and even in that small town, we would have 800 kids come. Oh, my
0: word. 800?
1: Yes. 800, 900.
0: oh my it was gosh a i feel like 100 is a lot 900 800 is insane yep holy cow
2: last year i bought uh, a huge box of milky way bars like actual size bars to hand out for any kids that I came to my this. apartment door Yeah, and uh that way i would be you know the cool house that gives out actual candy bars instead of these tiny little pieces of crap and uh nobody can so i ate them all myself <laughs>
0: <laughs> i'm sure that you were so mad about it
2: a mm, little bit. Yeah.
0: Oh, well, I yeah. mean, you got to eat some delightful That's things. True. I yeah. Did. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. I hate on the gross stuff. There's a bakery right by my house that every year at Halloween uh, decorates. And it's, a, it's amazing skill. That these bakers and cake decorators have, they make it really with like bloody fingers and eyeballs and they have it displayed right up front. And it's a cake with all of this gross, gross. Yeah. It's just gross. So I, when I go in, I just try not to look at it. <laughs> it grosses me out so much so i get very excited when october's over for that reason anyway well gentlemen thank you for obliging you are all superb
2: <laughs> yes <Yeah, laughs> it's our now. job to show up here i, I
0: literally was that. waiting for brad to make some snarky comment about obli- obligatory uh, workplace well, involvement you
3: forget that brad hates compliments yeah and and so, i love to give them so it's yeah. a really
0: great workplace <laughs> relationship we have Well, folks, on that front, thank you for listening, and we will catch you next week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you've been enjoying our podcast, it would be awesome if you would review us on iTunes. And if there's a guest you'd love to hear on our show, give us a shout on Twitter. Tweet at the Texan News. We're so proud to have you standing with us as we seek to provide real journalism in an age of disinformation. We're paid for exclusively by readers like you, so it's important we all do our part to support the Texan by subscribing and telling your friends about us. God bless you, and God bless Texas.